All right, well, hey, good morning. Uh, Wherever you are today, uh, however you come this morning, welcome. Uh, We're really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, My hope and prayer for us as a community is that we can tap into like the generative nature of God enough um, that we can be a space where we can bring all that we have experienced this past week, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the tears of joy, the laughter, or the the tears of sorrow, the joy, the laughter of joy, and hold it in this space and carry it with one another and journey together with one another. Amen. It's good to see you. Um, uh, This morning we are continuing on in our sermon series, Stories of Old, A Journey Through the Old Testament. Uh, We've been in this for the last number of weeks. We're kind of hitting the high points throughout the Old Testament as we uh, seek to work our way through the big story of Scripture. So as we get ready to jump in this morning, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Loving God, we are so grateful for this this community, the gift that it is, the gift of this space to be together uh, throughout the week. And now, uh, God, as we uh, turn to the Scriptures, we recognize that your Spirit is here among us. We yield ourselves to your spirit, and we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was in grad school, I felt a good bit of pressure to make money, which like, is a terrible season of life to feel like a pressure to make any sort of money, especially because I didn't go to some fancy Ivy League school where there was like you know full tuition plus stipend, like Full tuition meant that I was paying out of pocket, and stipend meant that I had to make my own money, right? But this was the, the situation that I found myself in, feeling like I needed to make a good, bit of, a, a good bit of pressure to make money. The reason why I felt like I had this pressure to make money was um, due to the fact that Allie and I were getting married uh, around Christmas break. Uh, this was, uh, I was in a one-year grad school program, and Allie was in her, her senior year, and so um, we chose to kind of split the year because, you know, we were that much in love. We couldn't wait a whole another six months. So we decided to get married around Christmas time. Uh, but this meant that Allie had like a whole semester left in her senior year. And so I, I really didn't want her to have to worry about getting a job and like trying to make money for us. So I, I felt like I needed to take this on. And my schedule was much more flexible than hers as a senior nursing school student, which is a whole thing in and of itself, right? So I, I felt this pressure to make money. So I, do, so I did what you do when you feel pressure to make money. I got a job. More than just a job, I got three jobs. Uh, the first job was I interned on campus as our student spiritual life uh, intern, which you know kind of fit with the profession that I was heading towards, right? So I, I oversaw and had my hand in all things like spiritual life on campus. Uh, the second job was I was a barista at a coffee shop at a mega church. How niche of a job is that, right? Uh, my hope with this was that I could subtly work into every conversation with every staff person that came in. Hey, I'm in grad school for ministry and hope that they would just like hand out a job. Turns out, contrary to popular belief, mega churches don't just hand out jobs. Worked out all right for me. Um, third, uh, I worked for a husband and wife who had their own business who registered nonprofits for financial solicitation in 40 out of 50 states. Again, how niche is that? Uh, It was a lot of copying forms from last year to this year. Pretty mind-numbing, but perfect for uh, time in grad school. So between these three jobs, I was working something like 30 hours a week, plus I was a full-time grad student, and a program that I would later learn was a two-year program condensed down into one year, and they said was expedited, right? (laughs) So it was a busy, busy year. And I knew it was going to be a busy year, but I thought that this was the plight that I had to carry for this year. And so I started out the year really strong. 
Well, then something happened about one month in. Can you guess what happened? I crashed hard. <laughs> I woke up one morning and I was so incredibly sick, like to the point where like I spent all that weekend in bed and I knew immediately what was going on. My body had just like given out. <laughs> like I was pushing it so hard for this month that like my body just said, nope, I'm done. I give up. I'm waving the white flag. Like you can't push on anymore, right? Uh, and in that moment, I knew that something had to change. And so uh, I ended up quitting one of those jobs. And unfortunately, it was the barista job, like my favorite one. Like I love coffee and all of that, but you know, it didn't make money, right? And this was the pressure that I was feeling, right? But I knew in that moment that I had to quit, one, to like simply survive because my body was giving up on me. <laughs> and two, I knew that I needed to quit so that like I could be somewhat functioning in the rest of the areas of my life. Now, my hunch is, is that uh, it's not too difficult for you to relate to this sort of story, right? It may be different circumstances, but I assume that most of us have come to a place where we pushed ourselves to the point that like we have, our bodies have literally given out on us. And the reason why I feel pretty safe in making this assumption is that we find ourselves living in a time and place, and more particularly, we find ourselves living in a culture where we have normalized things like busyness and things like exhaustion. So do a little thought experiment with me here. Over the last month, how many times have you asked somebody how they're doing and they responded, good, busy, or good, tired, <laughs> Right, we've normalized not only a response of good, like we, like we have to pretend that we're always good, but we've also normalized the fact that like, we're all busy, we're all exhausted, and we're all fine with it, right? Like this has become our default MO in life, is one of pure exhaustion. Uh, early on in uh, COVID, uh, remember life before COVID? When, you know, but early on in COVID, there was this moment where uh, all of these professional athletes were like, catching COVID and were like, down for the count with it. We didn't know much about COVID, uh, and I was looking at this, and I was like, oh, dear goodness, if these professional athletes who have bodies that are much better than mine are getting hit hard with COVID, I'm scared to death of this thing, right? Some studies began to come out, and it began to, to recognize that, um, yes, these athletes are incredibly efficient with what they can do with their bodies, right? Uh, but to get to this point of being incredibly efficient, they've had to push themselves to the max day after day after day after day to the point that their bodies actually aren't healthy. <laughs> They're incredibly efficient and they can do all sorts of things that I can only dream of doing, right? But their bodies themselves aren't actually that healthy because our bodies aren't meant to be pushed to the limit that much. And I think for us, particularly as good red-blooded Americans, we pride ourselves in being able to do like 60 hours worth of work in like 40 hours, or we just pride ourselves in the ability to do 60 hours worth of work in a week. And we've gotten really, really efficient at being able to fill every little bit of moment with like checking email on our smartphone or whatever it may be. But again, I don't know that our bodies were meant to be pushed that hard day after day after day. So here's my concern with this. My concern is that we can get so caught up in being busy. And I recognize this crowd. Like, we're, we're not, like, just busy, like, tinkering with meaningless things. Like, like we're, we're busy doing good things, right? Like, we're caught up in, in pursuing good things in the world around us. But my concern is that we can get so caught up in being busy that we forget to care for ourselves in the process. And because we forget to care for ourselves in the process... Like the best case scenario is, is that we have very little to offer the world around us. And worst case scenario, uh, we can actually do like some pretty destructive things to the world around us. 
Now, I think we see this sort of dynamic happening, uh, like this, someone getting to the, like, the end of themselves in one of the major Old Testament characters, and that is none other than Elijah. Now, a little backstory on Elijah. Elijah's a prophet, which means that he's a messenger of God. So when God comes and wants to share something with, with the people, God comes to Elijah and gives Elijah the message, and, God, and Elijah acts as the mouthpiece of God. Now, Elijah is living in a particularly interesting time in the history of the people of God, because this is a time period that we can uh, describe as the divided kingdom. So a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, Saul, uh, the first king of Israel, and then we looked at David, the second king of Israel. David had a son named Solomon, and under these three, there was what's called like a united kingdom. So uh, all the, of the tribes of Israel were united in this one nice, neat, beautiful little family called Israel, right? Towards the end of Solomon's life, something happens where there's a bit of like a, a split of sorts, right? And so we end up with uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And this is a fascinating time in history because imagine if you were one big happy family living on a commune with all of your distant relatives, and then suddenly you split and now there's a fence between you. That's going to make for some awkward interactions, right? Same with the, the people of God. Now, uh, as it's also an interesting time in the history of the people of God because there's king after king after king, and the majority of these kings are pretty downright awful. <laughs> so much so that throughout the book of 1 Kings, when we're introduced to new kings, it's not uncommon to read something like this uh, after we're introduced to one. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the ways of his ancestors and in the sin that he caused Israel to commit. So it's not just bad enough that this king was awful, but this king was also bringing the entire nation down with him, which if you're any old nation, that's fine. But if you're the people of God, well, you know, now you're bringing people away from like their original vocation of following God, right? Not a good thing. As we follow the progression of kings throughout 1 Kings, we come then to a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab would follow in this tradition, but this is the description that we're given of Ahab. Ahab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, we're familiar with all of this. But more than all who were before him, which tells us that out of the long line of awful kings, Ahab is the worst of them up to this point. And it's into uh, Ahab's rule and reign that Elijah comes to be. So we're first introduced to Elijah like this. God comes to Elijah and tells Elijah to go to King Ahab and predict that there's going to be a drought for three years. And then God tells Elijah to get on up out of the, the country, probably because Ahab's not happy with him, right? So a, uh, Elijah flees out of the country and he comes and he lives uh, with a widow and her son and does pretty ordinary things, right? Like there's this food that mysteriously reappears in the jar and they never seem to run out, even though there's a drought and all of these sorts of things. And then, you know, raises her son to life, you know, ordinary sorts of things. And then at the end of this undisclosed time, he comes back to his country and God tells him to go to Ahab and say that the drought is about to end. But the way that uh, God is going to bring about the end of this drought is that um, Elijah has the showdown with these priests of Baal. These foreign, uh, this foreign god who has somehow crept its way into the people, into the nation of the people of God. And so there's this big showdown and he challenges these prophets of Baal, construct this wooden altar and call down from your God to, to light it on fire. And so these gods are going time and, or these prophets are going uh, hour after hour and they're like cutting themselves now and bleeding and doing all of these frenetic sort of calls to their God to light this thing on fire. And Elijah's over here like a pesky little brother egging him on, right? And nothing happens. Now it's Elijah's turn, and Elijah says, bring out the water. And so they dunk wa barrels of water upon barrels of water upon the altar, and then he calls, and then there's fire from heaven, and the thing explodes, right? 
And he grabs a sword and kills the prophets of Baal. All in a day's work, right? Now this brings us to our story for today. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, we're told, Ahab told Jezebel. Jezebel, by the way, is Ahab's wife. Um, never really presented in a good light, uh, often attributed for like most of the bad things that have happened. Whether that's fair or not, that's how the story presents Je- Jezebel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. This is what we call in the streets a threat. (laughs) She has essentially said, May what happened to the prophets of Baal happen to me if I don't make your life worse than them by tomorrow, right? That's a good old-fashioned threat. And so Elijah responds like most of us. He was afraid, got up, and fled for his life. But the next line in the story, we're told, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. He says, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and he fell asleep. Here we have Elijah feeling just completely exhausted. He's feeling dejected. He's feeling done. Like he's come way past the breaking point and he collapses here to the point that like he wishes that like he wasn't even alive because he's just that bone dead tired. What happens next in the story is a really interesting thing because here, or what happens next, we have, I don't know, a, 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 um, a, a profound act of grace from God to Elijah. Here's what God does. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. What was this profound act of grace from God to Elijah? Bread, water, and a nap. (laughs) How awesome is that? Like recognize the, the state that Elijah has been in up to this point, right? Like he's exhausted, he's feeling dejected, he's feeling done. It's been an intense three years of like raining down fire from heaven and like raising people from the dead and calling out the world, or calling out the king of his country, right? Like I think he has a point to be exhausted. And yet in this moment, God recognizes that he's feeling exhausted. And a, probably a bit like a Snickers commercial where there's like this awful caricature of the person and there's this realization that you're not you when you're hungry, right? So eat something. God seems to settle him down, gives him something to eat, and gives him a nap, right? (laughs) I don't know why. This feels so peculiar to me, right? Like, it's such an obvious sort of thing, but out of, you know, like, raining down fire from heaven, the ordinariness of this feels so peculiar. Why does God act in such a, like, ordinary, peculiar sort of way? I think in verse 7, we get a little bit of an indication. We're told, the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. There's this recognition that like, there's more ahead for Elijah. That God's not done with Elijah. And God continues to want Elijah to be part of what God is doing in the world. And if he doesn't get up and take care of himself, he's not going to be able to keep moving forward. I think here we see that like, things like our bodies, like our minds, our spirits, our souls, like all of these things are important to God because without any one of these things like 
It's impossible for us to join in on the work of God. And I think this is the big sort of like spiritual insight from this, this story is like care for ourselves so we can keep on moving on and joining in in what God is doing around us. Now, I think this is a really important story for us, again, in our particular time, particular place, and our particular culture to hear. Uh, a particular culture which uh, has normalized busyness and exhaustion. Our culture which has like perpetuated things like busyness and exhaustion. Our culture which has like uh, celebrated things like busyness and exhaustion and worn it like a badge of honor. I think this is a really important story for those of us who are committed to doing good to sit with and to recognize that to join in on God's redemptive work in the world around us, we also need to join in on God's redemptive work in our own lives. This redemptive work being like really big, fancy things like rest and silence and stillness. Like in order for us to be able to join in and on these big, beautiful things that like God is wanting to do to bring about the healing of the world around us, like we have to create space for God to like bring about that same sort of healing in our life so that we can get caught up in what God is doing around us. See, I think sometimes we get so caught up in caring for the world around us that we forget to like actually care for ourselves in the process. And I think the invitation of the story is to slow down, to breathe, eat a snack, drink some water, take a nap. <laughs> I'm going to toot our, our horns here for just a second. So in our good Mennonite way, let's be humble here about this, right? As I think about this room, as I think about this space, the people here in person and on Zoom, like, I think there's something about this community that is really captivated by this idea of joining in on God's redemptive work in the world around us. I think for many of us, we, we've been presented with this idea that we have the capacity to like, be of the things of God, to bring about the healing of the world around us. And I think that has captivated us, it's shaped us, it's formed us, and it's given us all sorts of meaning in our life. I mean, think about some of the professions that are represented here, right? We have uh, teachers, we have healthcare workers, we have mental health professionals. Uh, Beyond professions, we have uh, parents and grandparents who are committed to like, creating spaces of love and acceptance and encouragement for their kids and their grandkids. Uh, we have people who want to be good neighbors and advocate for their neighbors and their communities. Uh, we have people who are volunteers who give of themselves graciously and generously to our church and other nonprofits. We have people who... Um, uh, maybe their bodies aren't able to like be out doing the physical work and so they're committed to writing notes of encouragement or emails of encouragement or texts of encouragement. I know I've received those. Or like just committing to pray for those who are able to be out and do the work themselves. I think I've hit just about all of us here, right? Like all of these things are really good, beautiful things. They're exciting. They're super encouraging. And honestly, they make my job as a pastor really easy when this is the community I get to be part of, right? But sometimes I do wonder if we... Uh, have remembered to care for ourselves along the way. To not just be so outwardly focused of joining in on God's redemptive work in the world around us, but to also take a step back and join in in God's redemptive work in our own life. I think we see this sort of rhythm and this sort of pattern uh, modeled really well throughout the ministry of Jesus. You know, like the ultimate do-gooder, right? We see throughout his life this sort of pattern and rhythm, and perhaps we see it most explicitly in Luke chapter 5. Uh, starting in verse 15, we're told, But now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad, 
Many crowds would gather to hear him and would be cured of their diseases. Like Jesus has been so caught up in, the, in God's redemptive work in the world around him that like fame of him has spread. People are coming from all over to come to see him, to be with him, to hear him, to touch him. Like he is the ultimate do-gooder, right? And yet we're told in the very next line, but he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. See, I think there's a very real temptation for Jesus here to be so caught up in joining in in the redemptive work of God and the world around him that like he poured himself out to the point of exhaustion where there was nothing left to give. And yet we see in Jesus's life, God in flesh, (laughs) even needing to take a step back, probably eat a snack, probably drink some water and take a nap, right? We see these regular patterns in his life. And I think in some ways this is meant to be like an example for us as well. Now, hear me out. Like, I'm not talking about, like, a, a treat-yourself approach to self-care, right? Like, dulling our senses by engaging in per, perhaps destructive tendencies, right? What I'm talking about is, like, creating some intentional space in our life to not dull our senses, but to create space for God to renew our senses, to carve out space to care for things like our bodies, our minds, and our spirits so that we then can be... Uh, in some sense, like brought back to life to join in the redemptive work of God and the world around us. So uh, perhaps a helpful question is, what does this actually look like, right? (laughs) I think first of all, we have to acknowledge that God cares about these things. God cares about our bodies. God cares about our minds. God cares about our souls. And we also have to recognize that these three things are like interconnected in intimate ways that I don't know that it's easy to parse them out, to say like, Uh, or it's not easy to parse them out and recognize that like what happens to our body certainly affects our minds and our spirits and vice versa all the way through. Having said that though, I think it's also helpful to like take them individually and ask some really helpful questions about them along the way. So what about our bodies? How are we caring for our bodies and how are we creating space for God, God's redemptive work to be at work in our life in our bodies? You know, our bodies are good, right? (laughs) Like, I think uh, we, within the Christian tradition, like, do a really good job of diminishing the role of our bodies. (laughs) And yet, the core story of the story of faith is God taking on a body, right? Which seems to affirm the goodness of our bodies. So are we, like, living lives that reflect the goodness of our bodies? Are we caring for our bodies? Are we getting enough sleep? Are we drinking enough water? Like, those are two of the easiest things that have, like, exponential returns on investment, right? Are we doing these really basic things Uh, Are we moving our bodies in meaningful ways, like exercise, stretching, getting up and moving after sitting at a desk all day? Are we caring for our bodies? Uh, Or what about our our minds? You know, we live in a really fascinating time where we have more information readily available to us in this device that we carry in our pocket than ever before in human history. I don't know about you, but I get to the end of the day and I'm like, there has been noise constantly in my life. I've been taking in something just about every second of the day. Are we giving ourselves a break from that? To embrace like this old school thing called boredom. (laughs) Or what about our spirits, our souls? Are we cultivating our souls? Do we give ourselves these spaces and places, these rhythms of quietness, of stillness, of embracing some sort of prayerful posture to enter into the loving embrace of God. 
I recognize some pushback that you may have. You may say, well, Sean, I'm way too busy for that. And I would say, yeah, that's the point, right? (laughs) For some of us, this means that we're going to have to carve out some things in our life. We're going to have to do a bit of an audit of our day-to-day life and recognize that maybe I don't need to sit scrolling on Instagram for an hour throughout my day. Maybe there's better use of that time, right? Or maybe I can cut out this sort of commitment and uh, focus more on what's like necessary in my life. But some of us don't have the luxury and the privilege to be able to cut things out of our life, and we have to get a little bit more creative. I find myself in a space with that right now with a young toddler who consumes every little bit of ounce of energy within me, right? And so one thing that I've committed to is like trying to go to the gym a couple times a week. But that takes up any sort of time that I have for a hobby. So this is what I do. I listen to Notre Dame football podcasts while I work out as my hobby. It's so obnoxious, I know. It's one of the most ridiculous things. But it's a beautiful way for me to engage my body and like allow my mind to just check out on something that's relatively meaningless to most people in the world, except for me, right? Uh, last thing here. I think we see an implication of what it looks like to join in in God's uh, redemptive work in our life uh, as the story of Elijah closes. We're told that Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, and it's at Mount Horeb that he would get uh, his, his next marching orders, like what it was next that God would invite him to do. Um, but as he's there, we're told that, that um, there are these three phenomena that show up. There's this giant wind that comes through, there's this giant earthquake, and there's fire that comes through. Like in the, the, the ancient world, like these are pretty obvious ways that God would be speaking to someone, and yet we're told with all of these, the Lord was not in them. But then we're told there was the sound of sheer silence. And God was in that. Now for Elijah to sit there and discern that like God was not in that, God was not in that, God was not in that, but God was in that would take a good bit of like energy and focus, which is not something you can do if you're exhausted and tired. Has anybody gone grocery shopping when they're hungry? It is a bad idea, right? (laughs) So I don't think it's any sort of coincidence that before Elijah gets his next marching order, God provides a snack, some water, and a nap for him to rest up so that he can actually discern what it is that next that God's inviting him into, what it is next, this redemptive work of God in the world around him that God is inviting him into. So my prayer for us is that we would be a people that uh, would, yes, be captivated by joining in in the work of God, the redemptive work of God in the world around us but that we wouldn't like sacrifice ourselves in the process and remember to join in in God's redemptive work in our own life. Um, And my pastoral assignment for you, your homework for today, go home, eat a snack, drink some water, take a nap. The word of the Lord, amen.